The Performance Lab podcast would like to acknowledge that the land on which we learn and work is the land of the Lenape, Wappinger, and Muncie people. The Performance Lab podcast is invested in the sharing of knowledge and cultivation of curiosity between makers. We invite guest artists to lead a workshop with the MFA candidates of Sarah Lawrence College, after which we interview them. We ask questions tailored to their individual practice, delving deeper into the how and the why of creation. Inspiration is all around us, but how do we hone in on the subjects that drive us? They share with us their tips, tricks, and sources of inspiration. Reflect on past performances slash projects. And keep us up to date on what is next. Stay tuned for the Performance Lab podcast. Hi there. Welcome to the Performance Lab podcast. I am Amelia Bethel, a second year grad at Sarah Lawrence College. And I'm Amanda Card, also a second year grad at Sarah Lawrence College. And today we have with us Tina Sater. Tina is a writer and director for theater and film, founder and artistic director of Half Straddle, a critically acclaimed OB-winning theater company based in New York City. Since 2008, the company has premiered 10 full-length shows and a number of shorter works and video projects that have been seen at festivals and theaters throughout the US, Europe, Australia, and Asia. In addition to Is This a Room, plays she's written and directed with Half Straddle and toured internationally and nationally include House of Dance, Ghost Rings, Seagull, Thinking of You, and In the Pony Palace slash football, among others. Tina is the recipient of a Foundation of Contemporary Arts and Doris Duke Impact Artist Awards, and she attended Mac Wellman's Graduate Playwriting Program at Brooklyn College with an MA from Reed College, BA from Bowdoin College. She's a visiting artist and or teacher at Princeton, Yale, NYU, Sarah Lawrence, Hunter MFA Playwriting, University of Michigan, University of Pennsylvania, and more. So welcome, (laughs) Tina. (laughs) Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be talking with you all. We're just, it's, it's an honor to chat with you today. Um, I was wondering if you would mind talking about the workshop that you just um, had with us today. Yeah, I mean, it was a ton of fun. And, you know, workshops in the time of Zoom has been, has been something actually I've been doing a lot in this past year. And sort of, I only bring in the Zoom aspect because it's sort of made some interesting constraints to how I normally would do workshops and, and they continue to evolve and they it even I tried some different stuff today with you all once it was up and running I you know I had a kind of way I would do a workshop in the before time in real life which was very similar where you generate this quick writing from memory based prompts and then I asked you ask you to generate gestures and then in in real world in the, when it was in the real world we'd you know be in a room together and up and the with the workshop participants, you'd get up on your feet and we'd make something really fast that was right there in real life. And so when I've been at, you know, when pandemic hit and was asked to do these on Zoom, it was a sort of amazing prompt of its own to be like, all right, how do I do this if we're not in a room together? And so much of it was based on literally harnessing a kind of energy, which is what we do as artists on stage. And so I, I, you know, leaned more into making the writing, some of which used to happen outside of the room happen in the Zoom room. And I found it really special to share those like five to 10 moments of everyone's head down in their boxes writing together on Zoom. I mean, that's actually been the first time I did it. I was like very unsure of how it'd go. And it was like, oh, that was very cool. These literally people around the world are writing together right now at the same time. Because, or, you know, in this case, I don't know if people were literally not in the US, but a woman was in Montana. So that was just really neat to have that sort of kinetic thing happening. Yeah, and as always, 
through these prompts, the workshop participants generate like the beginnings of a, of a play or a project. They have characters and they have a sense of story. And it's really exciting to see how quickly that can come together. And most, these are usually longer when they're in real life, like this unfolds over maybe four hours, but this two hours, ours was an hour 50 has been the standard time. And I think that's sort of the time to do on Zoom. And it's like kind of this miracle jewel box, I feel like at the end that I get to witness that each person has generated this new material. And I, and I said this you know, a couple of times with you all just now in the workshop itself, but it's even if there's just one line of text or one cool gesture that you've discovered, to me, that's like very worthwhile, you know, as a maker who's always looking for the little bits that we can put into like the nest and then make something from. Um, so yeah. Obviously, a lot more I could say on that, but that's sort of where I am. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, that was how I came to do those and how that one today sort of unfolded for us. So, yeah, it was wonderful. I definitely plan on revisiting some of the things we worked on in that workshop today. So, thank you very oh, much. Cool. Um, I had a quick question for you about um, Is This a Room, which I was able to see when it was up at the vineyard. Um, and I was so excited with the way that the redacted text was handled and made so theatrical, which in my mind, when I was thinking about how do you handle redacted text or even verbatim text, like I feel like uh, there's a barrier to making it theatrical. So I was just wondering what some other challenges you've come across with staging verbatim texts have been and how you've tackled them and turned them into these gorgeous theatrical moments. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that piece is the only piece that has verbatim text in it. So the redactions, of course, were a big thing to figure out. And, and then the text itself, <laughs> you know, is its own, is, was its own thing to figure out how to treat and is this a room? Um, since we weren't, the play for those unfamiliar, our staging of it and the play for those unfamiliar, there's no set. It's just the four actors that were called, the four bodies that were called for in that transcript on, a, on essentially a blank stage so then it was like how to give life force and deciding what what did it mean to make that text literal if it wasn't in a literal setting and and so that was the real work of of the project was um was that and the way i dealt with like dealing with that verbatim text i mean this is sort of a general statement there'd be a lot more i could say this too but was like trying to track it through energy exchanges, right? Like that was one of this thing that was always interesting to me. In Is This a Room, it's about a young, it's a totally true thing. It's a verbatim FBI transcript of a 25 year old um, American woman named Reality Winner who's surprised at her home by um, armed male FBI agents who then come into her extremely tiny house and over an hour and a half question her about this document she leaked she lies for the first three quarters of it and then admits and then they keep having a conversation with her um so it was like the words are there but making it sit in real space and with again with no no real set was like what does it mean to like dramatize all the listening that was going on because like that's like and so that's the energy exchanges are like the delivery of that text and then all the listening, which are always present in live theater, right? And that's a big thing. Actors are always told like, you're listening up there. But it, it was like this meta listening for this play because 
one has to assume that in real life, reality and those agents were listening to every syllable. Like there was a clue had to be found for all parties in every syllable. Like that's what FBI agents are, literally that's their game. Get in there trying to get someone to say something. So they're listening for that. And then it, as it becomes clear from reading the transcript and then the more we see reality seemed to, like is highly listening. She is listening for like, how can I get ahead of them? How can I offer them information? So you get this incredible, awesome to me, like, and, the, and for the actors, I think we had a lot of, like this crucible of listening. So it was just, again, like energy around that, like framing that up with movement and essentially framing that with movement and letting the actors do that thing, do their thing. Like they did a very naturalist, realist read and I didn't, in contrast to something I talked about in the workshop where I've given a lot of highly choreographed gestural um, scores to my pieces, is this a room had the movement score in a larger sense, like where the actors moved on the stage was highly choreographed, but done very loosely. So you might not quite know that, but the actors themselves, I was never saying, put your hand up to your eyebrow here, like turn your head after you say the house, like they were, they there was a freedom of that but the tension came from the movement score and just and yeah and just feeling out the beats in sort of an old-fashioned like you know directorial way like what are we rising and falling to here so yeah I was also able to see is this a room and I when I saw it I sat in one of the seats um on the stage and um Amelia where did you sit I also sat in one of the seats on the stage. Um, I think they were the cheaper seats, but I also would have picked it anyways because it was awesome. <laughs> yeah, they're the I, best seats, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. I mean, I would never <laughs> sit in them because I wouldn't want to be on that side of a whole audience. But I, <laughs> I, I watched parts of it in ways in rehearsals, and I'm like, this is the best seat. They're like in it somehow. Yeah. Yeah, and there were times when the the actors would would get so close to you, especially the actors playing the FBI agents, and I could feel that sense of oh, this is really intimidating. Um, I wanted to go back and see it again and sit on the other side. Right, 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 right. That would be like, but I wanted mm -hmm. to ask you about um, where that idea came from. Yeah, I I never made a piece like that. Obviously, that like with audience on two sides or in a round or anything. Obviously, that is something that's done. I never had an instinct towards it. But from the earliest thoughts of like, is this a play? <laughs> um, like when I, we were reading the transcript, me and Emily Davis and reading various other actors and in the agent roles, I, I was like, I feel like there's audience on both sides of this. Like I, somehow there's like some effect and I, and I didn't have an intellectual idea around it yet. You know, there's really, now there's like a lot of ways it makes sort of sense. Cause people are like, oh, it's like a jury or it creates this tension of, you know, we're sort of all implicated as we watch each other, watch this person go through this. But it, it was just a thing about corralling and pressuring, cooking and that energy um, was the original impulse. And when we went to test it out, it first premiered at the kitchen, the space in New York City, like a year before it came or about eight months before it came back to the vineyard. And there one day just to test, we just put up one line of chairs, you know, and you know, that sort of became a really cool way to do it. Something about the one line of chairs versus the whole bank of seats on the on the reg regular side. So yeah, it was just, again, something about pressuring in on it that felt um, like I wanted to try. And we really weren't 
sh sure, because it felt really crazy. Like our audience gonna fall asleep over there and ruin the whole thing. <laughs> like so, and when we first, you know, it opened in at the kitchen with no tests before that, and like, but it, right away you could feel that this it was right. It was, it felt risky for all involved and for the actors. It's it really they've expressed how that you're sort of never off the clock. You can't sort of turn up stage like an athlete and to catch your breath. But it really suits, I think, the topic too, especially for reality. She, Once she was in that house for them, there was no escape. So it helps dramaturgically support that. And it was so cool to see, to be able to see some of those private moments from our side. Yes. And think about how there's a whole other section of people who aren't seeing this this private moment with reality. I love yeah, those I felt like we were. Yeah. Sorry, getting a little extra. I was just agreeing. Yeah. Yeah, it was a gift. It was absolutely a gift. It felt like a special little moment. Um, but it did also really highlight that she was just on even when she was trying to take a moment to be off or catch a breath. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because we could, we built, like I said, because we weren't totally sure about it. We actually built the choreographic score to hold for the main house. A, because it just you're, it, I wasn't going to run back. I didn't run back and forth to every side to test it. But we felt like that we also might like, what if we get rid of those seats over there? We need to easily make it play to one side. But also, um, like, so it's built to like 80% play out. But the little gifts you get on the other side are what make that balance work, right? Like, you don't see these whole, it's built for stage pictures, like 80 to 90% for the house. But those little gifts, which I would sit over there for sure in rehearsals ultimately, felt so visceral and cool. Like to me really made up for the um, giving up being on the main stage picture side. I was doing some research and I found an interview, <laughs> some research, and I found an interview that you did about ghost rings. Yeah, yeah. Which I was not able to see. I wish that I could have. And I found you said we need more spaces where there is not a male sensibility, especially in artistic spaces. Um, and in our workshop, you also mentioned something about like feeling like you're kind of like in the world of adolescent girls in, <laughs> yeah. the, in the work that you make, which really resonates with me. Um, so I was just wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, the, the first part of that is like, it's just a fact, like we just, we're still, it's just, we're just living in systemic, systemic patriarchal society. Like we just are, it becomes more and more evident and almost becomes more evident as we thankfully move through like very necessary things like Me Too. And just clearly there's like been more discourse and discussion way more openly in the last, you know, half decade of what it means to have lived like this and how it affects everything. But you still, most, <laughs> most, you know, entertainment and theater still operates from a male paradigm in a male space, even when it sort of doesn't, it's still like what centers things. And a lot of like work that's feminist and some of it incredibly good. It's like bounce. It's like responding to what it means to have to deal with that male patriarch like it's like a work about that struggle and mm -hmm. I was always inherently trying to like just remove that and be like what if there's this all-female or all-queer space like mm -hmm. where they're just there you know and like a show I made in the Pony Pals football it's like when we started making it it was all female identified actors playing this sport of football by the time we, we kept making it and touring it some of them like transitioned and had different identities by the end so it like was it you know trans and all female space um but 
it wasn't about like, they're the girls football team against showing they can do it. It was just like, what if, what if these women and queer people just play this sport? And I, so that carving out that space just still se seems so, so necessary and like leveling and just exciting because we don't see it enough and we just need to, it's really simple. I mean, we just need to keep seeing it. And so it's what I love to see. And I, you know, I think I've even grown up. I mean, I, I, I don't, I've used male and male identified actors the whole time too, actually, but or met not much of the time. And I more and more, I'm like less like, okay, having to be super stringent about it. But I still think that that space, just as I get interested in other actors or, you know, evolve and think of other ways to tell these female stories or queer stories, you know, you realize you can encompass more things. But yeah, it just, it feels really an important mandate. Um, I, you know, I always try to make what's true to my heart and that sometimes it's not an all female landscape that those heartbeats are always, it turns out in the center of it. I mean, I've said this about, the, the, is this a room about like, I read this story of, is, about reality winner, read the transcript. I would have been very taken with that story if it had been a young man. Like it's a pretty fascinating story. I would never have been art, something artistically got set off in me this first page of the transcript because it was a young woman moving through that. Like that body moving through that is what so like that is just, and I just think then to tie back to adolescent like girlhood and something I brought up in the workshop with you all was like, I'm, you know, I, my, I have one sister and we're very like close and almost look alike. And I'm so formed by how we communicated. It's like my er baseline of what it means to be who I am in the world and think about things is like almost this like mirrored person I grew up with and came of age with. And so I do think a lot of it ties back to that as the center of like communication and play and identity for me. And so that space feels really rich to me personally and creatively. And then once I started making stuff, you know, early on, like 12 years ago, or whatever, in this naive way, I was like, oh, people think this is like another space. And I was like, well, they need to see a hell of a lot more of this then. Like what, you know, we, why can't like, let's show adolescent girls, which, adolescent women are like kicked to the side in terms of what it means to have value and like as much as any like sort of group so it just felt like reinvigorating that space as a valued space and like with real stories and um landscape was something that it just it's where it comes to me naturally but once I realized it was like people were like oh weird I was like okay we need to keep making this like this and it has you know remained even more exciting to me. And again, not all plays totally sit in that space, but like I did say short a little bit ago, oh, it, it, it's almost still always an instigating factor in me. I think it's in, in, in every character. So it's very exciting to me too, because I feel like even as a former adolescent girl, a lot of my adolescence was shaped around boyhood or masculinity. So it's exciting to also kind of recreate that space that maybe yes. wasn't available to everyone and to make it just so focused on what it is to be a young woman living in this society and to kind of forget about masculinity and the patriarchy for a moment. Yeah, I love what you just said, Emily, about recreating that space. Cause I think that's a lot of what theater can do. Like we can do anything on that space, right? And recreating things is, is really an interesting and exciting way to put it for me too. Yeah, totally replaying 
replaying these things, but with whatever way you want to imagine them or see them good or bad. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was wonderful. Thank you so much. I was wondering if you had any advice for artists who are trying to create work right now to like keep them going in this exciting Zoom space that we're in for the moment. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a hard space. I mean, I think for any artist, I, I find a way <laughs> to keep going, but don't put crazy pressure on yourself, right? I mean, I think take, if one can remove oneself from any of the like superficial things of like, where is this play gonna go? Or is this gonna be a big professional thing? Or seeing that someone else is working on a play or a TV show, like, it's impossible to do that. So process that when you see it and move through it, but do keep making something and figure out what feels okay to make in this time. Like, and it be enough for the moment. Like that is something I, you know, I have not made any big theater project in the last year and I have peers who have, but I've been like shooting these crazy videos with my partner and these little kids <laughs> know where I live out in the country in Vermont in the, the, our temporary pandemic situation that are like, my partner is a writer. And so we stage these like outdoor book readings and we make them super fast, but I pull all these costumes and they're like 10 minutes. And it like totally, it feels like enough. Like it feels so fun to do that. So again, like find what, you know, I think, I, I think me, but probably you all and people listening to this, have, you know, I kind of do have a constant strain of some form of creativity <laughs> running through me. It's very rarely uh, optimized in the most useful way. I'll say that but like, <laughs> I can get sparked really easily and just kind of leaning into that. What can spark? Like it's a, is it a play you do with the people you live with? Do you do writing exercises one day? Do you do something on Zoom? I mean, because if it was the, if we didn't have Zoom, my advice would be make something and get it out there in whatever way. Like that's always my advice. It, you really, to figure out our, it's less about like people seeing you and being discovered, but more like we figure out how we want to make stuff and what we want to make next by making it. So I'm always like, just, just make it, write the play, try to get it seen even in a 10 minute thing, record yourself making a radio version of it, just make something. And I think in this time with Zoom and pandemic, it is more loaded because I don't think there should, there's just, it's been impossible to have that pressure. Like you have to have output. Cause I, again, I've really experienced feeling totally dead inside and just kind of neutral. Mm -hmm. But I do think if you're like, get some little spark, let that go to be the thing you make something with. And, and you you'll learn something from it and you'll keep those muscles moving. Cause it, it, it is, if, uh, as our practices, we, it is pretty important to kind of find a way to keep those muscles moving a bit. And even if it's with way less pressure and stuff or in a slightly different way, see if you can locate those occasionally at the least uh, and, and work on, and work on something small or big. Um, but yeah, cause it's, to me, it's always about keeping making, but again, it's just to me, it's so important. It's not with the idea of like, I'm going to write the next amazing play, but it's like, oh, I'm going to figure out what I want to make next if I make this or, and I, another thing I'd say just as advice around this, <laughs> because it, it, now that it seems more helpful actually, I'd say it like each new project I do, I try to do something better or different than the last project I did. And that's sort of real. I identify because I can always identify what I didn't like about something I made or like how we worked or like, oh, that we did it, but it was very challenging at this part in the rehearsal process. And I often try to be like, okay, what 
in this project cool, I will get to work on this um, part. So setting up that just so that things also can be more of like a little actual laboratory for yourself to discover a new way of working or, and it doesn't even have to be something you feel like you failed at, but if you've like, I've always wanted to make uh, an all cat cooking show and that's just <laughs> what I'm gonna make. <laughs> like, I'm gonna make a 10 minute all cat cooking show. What would that be? Okay, I don't have any cats, the cats are puppets. Like, my mom's gonna call in and be a cat. Like, I don't know, just really, I mean, I think it was clear from there, like, you know, from my workshop, like really dumb things can really set off some cool stuff and not being afraid to try those. And then not being afraid to admit they really didn't work, but sometimes they do. So yeah, not being too precious. Mm -hmm. um, you said all ca all cats, which I, made me think of the goats, the goats that oh, we've been yeah. talking about. And <laughs> so, all yeah. goat An all play. goat cooking show. <laughs> I mean, I should have shared some screenshots. The goats, are a very real thing they try to get in the house a lot and they're they are of course in a lot of the videos we shoot for my partner's um book readings because they're like they're just you get a landscape where goats are walking around do you like it's goats no, are undeniable they, when they're around they, and, right, but they have these big eyes that look like glass and they're like kind of dumb but they actually are up to something always i mean they're devilish they're a pain in the ass i was telling my best friend and frequent collaborator, Jess Barbagall, just the other night on the phone, I'm like, they're a pain in the ass, which is why I like them. Like some other, like they're actually always has something else sinister and not sinister, but in mind. And I think that's really great. Obviously that's really good creative energy to me or something. Like there's, you get built in subtext. So yeah, the goats, I don't know what's going to happen if they'll, it's too much like my dad. Everyone's always like, make a play about your dad. He's such a character. And I'm like, it's too close. And right now the goats are too close. <laughs> <laughs> the goats but, will show up later. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, now that I see that, I have written them into one project I'm doing. I can't believe I almost forgot that yet. They're, they're playing a part in something I'm writing. Because, yeah, they were there. I forgot. It's not a goat play, but they're a texture. <laughs> in a futuristic New York City play. So. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I we're goats roam. <laughs> I'm to so pumped. I want to be so bad. Amanda, we'll go see it together. Great. <laughs> yeah. I gotta hope there's another day when we're all seeing each other's work down the line and it's gonna happen. Seriously. Gonna happen. Yes, yeah. it will. Well, I know we only have a couple minutes um left, but I wanted to ask you if you have anything that you want to plug or um where can people find you on social media? Yeah. Um you know, really nothing immediate to plug. Now that you're asking that, I'm trying to think of my friends who all usually have pretty interesting stuff going. But um, most of my stuff is situated on my theater company's site, Half Straddle. So www.halfstraddle.com. <laughs> you know, that ha that'll always have if we have something coming up. It has, you know, descriptions of past shows and um, some show images. We have an Instagram, which is also Half Straddle. That Instagram's got a lot of the footage of the recent things I've been making. So, so like weird Vermont landscapes and little kids dressed up holding tea kettles and a goat and a dog, stuff like that is <laughs> can be found there. Um, but, and always also half straddle stuff, which something about these little kids out here, it feels like half straddle went back in time and they're, mm. they're before we ever even became a company, this is what it was or something. Oh, um, wow. And on Vimeo, so half, if you put in half straddle on like the usual places you can find something, because in Vimeo, we have a lot of the work, a lot of it is full length and you can't see all of it, but 
there's some trailers and some short excerpts. But yeah, you know, hopefully more to come um, in the year to come. But for now, like images and short videos are the things to look at, which I think is the case <laughs> for many people. But yeah. Well, that's awesome. I'm going to check out those goat pictures, all the goat yeah, content. Yeah. Actually, the crazy goat <laughs> so content where they uh, tried to like look in the house numerous times up close. I got <laughs> it half straddle Instagram. And like, it's you. there's one picture where they honestly look fake. Like, it, I think people think I made fake goat heads because I often oh my God. animals or like the dog and cat. And is this a room? Mm-hmm. So I think. I, people are like, are these goats real? Yeah, now I'm excited for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I said, taking inspo where you can get it. If it's really creepy goats staring in your window, at least get a good, you know, I get a good mise-en-scene if I can of that. So, <laughs> and edit that. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I think yeah. we're getting close to time, but this was wonderful. Um, it yeah. was such a pleasure to chat with you. Yes, so nice to talk so to you too, too. And um, really fun to have worked with you in the workshop as well. So thanks. The Performance Lab podcast was brought to you by Contemporary Performance Network in association with the Sarah Lawrence College Theater MFA program. For more information, please visit our websites at www.contemporaryperformance.com or www.slctheater.com.